for the week of June 11th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 620, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Greentown, Pennsylvania, I'm Michael Giltz. I'm trying to figure out what's in Greentown, Pennsylvania. Is that where there was like this big uh, fire in the, the I-95 collapse, this big freeway collapse? That, was, that, near that, Phil- that was near Philadelphia, and people died in that. They found some, some human remains, unfortunately. Uh, but no, I'm in Greentown, Pennsylvania, for a happy reason, a wedding. My nephew, Kevin, got married to his sweetheart, Sabrina, and we are here for the wedding this week. I brought my 94-year-old mother by car. We had a wonderful time at the wedding. We're hanging out for a few days. On Thursday, we had head to Toronto to go visit my mom's family. She's from Toronto, Canada. And so we're going to have a long weekend there and then head back home. Despite all that, despite traveling, despite my 94-year-old mother, I said, Mom, you're just going to have to sit on the side of the road while I do the podcast because the people of Showbiz Sandbox are too important. They come first, Mom. They come first. Is there anything you want to tell us about next week's show? Um, Did you know... Did you know that Cine Europe is next week? No, I did Barcelona? not. Barcelona? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're they, in Toronto. So you know what? Why don't we, since you're in Toronto next week. Do they not week, have Wi-Fi in Barcelona? <laughs> no, but I'll be attending the conference. So yeah. literally, that's the day I'll be, the conference starts. So All that's, right. so but we'll no, just show, call it, no show next week. We'll call correct, you No, no Show, show Sperling. Oh, that, yeah. That'll well, be your new name. Rhymes. Like Hangman in Top Gun Maverick. By the way, I left Birmingham, Alabama with my brother, my old brother David, watching Top Gun Maverick for the umpteenth time. I arrive here. <laughs> my, uh, my, uh, 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 another uh, young person, a friend here, she and her boyfriend are here for the wedding. Um, members of the family now. Uh, I don't know what the relationship is. My brother's wife's daughter. I don't know what that makes her to me, um, but Ali's very nice. And Trevor, and Trevor's like, I guess we'll be watching Top Gun Maverick this weekend. I thought, you know, he's like, he wasn't joking. Chris is like, let's watch Top Gun Maverick again. <laughs> so it's just like, that movie is <laughs> dominating old white men. They are eating that stuff up. They will be waiting, of course, for the sequel to Gladiator. That will be an exciting movie for them as well. Unfortunately, we make light of movies. We talk about the business. These things seem so perfunctory. But we remember from the disaster on that movie with Alec Baldwin where a person was killed with firearms on the set for the sequel to Gladiator. There was a big accident. They were doing a fire stunt and six crew members got injured. The first word was that they were not life threatening, but that doesn't mean their lives haven't been ruined. I don't know how seriously they are injured. Multiple people are in the hospital. So our thoughts are with them. We're making movies. Nobody should get injured. Safety should always be first. That goes without saying. You know, whenever I see those stunts being done uh, on a set, I'm always amazed at how hot those fires get. Yeah. You know, even those pyrotechnics are incredibly hot. Yeah, they're, they're, it is very, very dangerous. That's for sure. It's amazing. More accidents don't happen. That's to the great stunt work and safety coordinators. But if every film set has a safety coordinator, everybody has to meet every morning to say, what's happening this day? What are the risks? And they can just have a refresher. That's one thing that may come out of the rust tragedy. And I hope it does, because that would be a really good thing. Now, you, you mean, did you say rust or rush? Rust, isn't it rust? Or Rust, something like that? Yeah. The, the film that Alec Baldwin was working on. That's right. Um, but, you know, that's what we're talking about. I'm here with my family. We're watching movies. I'm trying to slip away to listen to some music every once in a while. And I have to say, I keep seeing this trend on new albums. Uh, Neil Horan of uh, One Direction, his new solo album came out. Janelle Monet, a terrific talent. She's coming to Birmingham, Alabama to place at the same venue where uh, Kid Rock was disinvited at the Avondale Brewing Pub. So I will be there to see Janelle Monet. I'm a big fan of hers. I've never seen her in concert. Both their new albums, about 30 minutes long. His is 30 minutes. Hers is 32. That shows a respect for the audience. Like, I don't need to just jam pack it with extra mixes and stuff so I can get lots of streaming. I want to make a great work of art. And if it's meant to be 32 minutes, I'm done. So I'm excited to listen to those albums. And I hope our show will be 32. (laughs) Just kidding. What are we going to talk about this week? Uh, well, this week, we will be sure to, since those albums are so short, we're going to try and you know make this show a lot longer 
actually. Yeah, to yes. give you, give to you talk your money about more great short albums. <laughs> right. Uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're still dazzled by the Tony Awards. We'll discuss the winners, their performances, and, you know, who might benefit at the box office. Plus, we'll find out what plays and musicals are popular in high schools around the country because that's where you're, you know, that's probably where you're going to discover the next Tony Awards winner. And it's also Michael's favorite segment of the year. Oh, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at the strikes roiling Hollywood. The DGA released some more info on its deal, and the reviews are, well, decidedly mixed, especially for directors who also write, you know, those multi-hyphenates, writer-director. But the Writers Guild strike continues, of course, and SAG After members made it loud and clear they're ready to strike as well. And as if Disney doesn't have enough on its plate, even workers at Disneyland Paris are taking to the picket lines, though it is in France, so they might just be striking because it's Tuesday. How, do you, how do you say strike in en français? <laughs> I think I think it's a Wednesday. Miracles. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep trying. Mercredi, actually. Mercredi, I know, but I'm now going to have a million French speakers say, you yeah. just said Spanish for, for Wednesday. For the love no. of God. <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. We get a link to calm scores in our show notes. We also pull information from uh, Billboard, Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, uh, LA Times, Wikipedia, Box Office Mojo, Box Office Profit, you name it. And the number one movie around the world is... Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, or as Sperling would say, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> Thank you very much. Spider-Man made $181 million. It's at $390 million worldwide. It has already passed the whole take of the original Spider-Man animated film. That grossed $384 million. So in 12 days, the second film in this trilogy has passed it. We began with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This movie is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And then we're going to go to Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse. We're going to go past the Spider-Verse. It's a very good movie. If you're at all interested, go check it out. And number two around the world is Transformers Rise of the Beasts. That made $171 million worldwide. The $60 million in North America might seem underwhelming, but most of these movies made most of their money worldwide. They really translate worldwide. And all of these movies, there are seven in all, uh, six have already been released. This is the seventh. All of them, except the Mark Wahlberg version, uh, Transformers, The Last Night, have been profitable, even the Bumblebee one. So they've all been made for about $200 million, except the Bumblebee, which was a little cheaper, and they've almost all been profitable. So Transformers, Rise of the Beast, would like to keep that train a-rolling. The Little Mermaid is out. It made $87 million this week. It's at $415 million worldwide. It costs a lot of money to make. It may struggle to get to $750 million. In fact, it will get struggle and it won't make it. But it has already doubled the worldwide gross of the original movie, The Little Mermaid. But of course, that was many years ago. Forget in adjusting for inflation. Just looking at how popular that movie has been and the stage productions and all the things that have sprung out from it, you know it has a lot more value than that $200 million worldwide gross. So this one is disappointing compared to the original. It's disappointing compared to the budget, uh, disappointing compared for the reviews. But, uh, you know. Now, do you think it's the reviews? or Yes, absolutely. It's live action. Most of them have been poor. They're not good. Fans go to see them anyway. I just think I don't think people are rejecting it because the lead is a, is, a, is a woman of color. I think they're rejecting because it's they've been going to this well once too often, I feel like. You know, these are just like, none of them are interesting. They're just, you know, uh, when they're real remakes of the movie, it doesn't work. When there's something spun off from it, like Cruella, you know, or something like that, then it can work, um, at least creatively and commercially. But I think it's just, you know. We're tired of them. They're running out of movies. Fast X is uh, is doing okay, but that's a little tired too. Fast X 10, Fast 10 made $50 million. That's at $650 million worldwide. It's not going to get close to a billion dollars, which is what it would need to triple its reported budget. And yet they've asked for two more, you know, not one, not two movies, but three movies as a finale. They may come to regret that. In Korea, we have the roundup, No Way Out. Do you remember when The Rock was like, there is no way and no <laughs> amount of money that you could pay me to be on 
another Fast and Furious movie. With Vin Diesel. With Vin Diesel. He's making his own movie separate. He's not with oh, Vin I Diesel. Oh, I thought he was. I, I it's thought a spin-off-y was... thing. Yeah. Uh, my um, understanding is it's a spin-off-y thing. So, yeah. He's happy to make his own movie and make a lot of money. Okay. <laughs> so, back in Korea, we have the Roundup. No way out. That made $26 million this week. It's at $60 million and counting. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, that's definitely a success story. That passed the $800 million mark. It's still looking to match number two, but it made $26 million this week, so it should probably get close enough to number two to match it or beat it. The Boogeyman is a horror flick based on a Stephen King short story. It made another $20 million this week. It's at $40 million worldwide. People are still going up another level on the Super Mario Brothers movie. That made $15 million this week. $1,315,000,000 worldwide. That's a lot of money. In China. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Oh, so you yeah, were like, yeah, oh, you know, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. Ah, yeah. in China, the family comedy Godspeed made another $6 million. That's at $161 million worldwide. The Miyazaki film Castle in the Sky was reissued in China. That's made another $6 million this week. It's at $34 million worldwide. Uh, scrolling down to another movie, the Japanese anime film Doraemon, Nobita's Sky Utopia, the 42nd film in this modestly budgeted animated series. Um, it made $2 million this week. It's now at $44 million worldwide. So those are the big movies around the world. Um, one interesting thing, maybe you can talk about it. I didn't even mention it to you, but the sound on Spider-Man across, what is it called? Across? Across the Spider-Verse. Apparently, people were complaining that in the first few minutes of the film, the audio was really low. And in fact, I saw the movie and kind of thought the audio was really low too and almost went and said, hey, could you crank it up? And it turns out that the studio has now sent out new digital prints with an updated audio mix. It was basically the opening scenes and only reportedly in a handful of theaters, though I saw it myself. Um, so... I guess that's much easier to do when there are digital prints, obviously. Yes. If this was a 35 millimeter print, they'd say too bad. Tough. So that, yeah, <laughs> we ain't striking a new print for you. Maybe variety, future prints. That, variety, says, variety says, quote, it's not entirely uncommon for distributors to send re-edited prints to exhibitors if the opportunity presents itself. How does that sound? Yeah. For, is that true? I mean, it hasn't been very long since they've had a chance to do such a thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of, it's not out of the ordinary. Come on, it's it's definitely out of the, nobody wants to send another print. It costs right. money. And, uh, and we're reading about it, so I'm assuming this is not, oh yeah, let's fix It's like, it's very rare that they have a screw up and need to send a new print for this reason, whether it's the print or the image or the audio or whatever. So I would assume it is, uh, it's not uncommon if they need to it's common if they are you know if they have to but it's not something that happens a lot i would assume correct and you know sometimes they'll oh well we need subtitles so we'll send the subtitle file separately well the that's, subtitle that's file be sent separately oh that's in but that's just a that's not a screw up so much as a, we need a new subtitle or something for a new territory no or they'll send the dubbed soundtrack to go along with the print that's already there uh-huh Okay. You know, but and so in general, what's the last movie you can think where they did something like this? They wanted uh, to fix something in the movie. And so they resent the print. I can't a while. remember. Right. Exactly. It's so been it's been a while, but it was definitely something where they had to like re-edit something. Or I mm -hmm. think it was, did they edit out something from a Disney movie because of the, the Chinese version had the map of Taiwan or something. The South, that, South that China stuff was done before the movie was okay. released. I don't think that was after, but maybe I'm remembering it wrong. But I will say this. Here's a geeky thing and something only possible because of social media. Phil Lord, one of the co-producers and co-screenwriters, told people, hey, if the movie sounds low, go to the lobby and tell the theater, make sure your theater volume is at reference seven. <laughs> yes. So all, all <laughs> yes, all cinema audio processors. This is like anything that anybody's ever made a movie that is going to screen theatrically knows. And by the way, all theater operators know it. All distributors know it. The cinema audio processor takes the audio from the projector or the server, depending on whether it's digital or 35 or 70, puts it through to the amplifiers. That should be set at seven. All movie audio. They're always at seven. As, why? Why would anyone turn it down? If it's oh. set at seven, shouldn't it be taped down? They don't save money like with the uh, light. No, bulb no. Issue. You know, what 
Simpsons, to be honest, there's a there's a running joke. The the old lady on uh, the Friday matinee show sets the volume for your weekend because <laughs> it's, it too loud. it's too loud. Right, and then everybody they turn it down to five, and then the projectionist never goes back and turns it up. Now I should say that it's not the projectionist anymore. Now it's the theater manager who goes up to the booth and goes, "Oh, how do I? Oh, let me just turn this down to five. Well, that. It, that lowers the volume by a lot. And so what happens is the trailers are mixed very they're so, hot. Uh, they're ma- maxed at like nine. <laughs> right. And so there's technically the automation is supposed to, what, what happens is theaters will go from nine to seven. Right. Exactly. They'll, they'll, they will, the theater, the automation is supposed to kind of bring it from Feature seven film, down to five. To ads. Five. Feature, go to the correct level for the feature film. The ads are always annoyingly loud. There's a professional committee of which one of the heads of Dolby is, the, I think, the chairman, called TASA, the Trailer Audio Society of America or something like that, where they're, they're actually trying to monitor and max out the, the trailer mixes at please, a level of 85 please, decibels. Please, And so they've been monitoring it and they have been at doing that. The problem is it's at a constant 85 decibels. Right. Everybody wants to max out and say, ah, listen to my movie. I can't tell you the number of times I've walked into a booth and that knob is at five almost Ugh. all the time. Oh my God. Really? And so people yes. are hearing movies too low. Cause I totally, when this movie yes. began, I felt it was low. And yes. now, so we know you can say that anytime, any movie, anywhere you're seeing a movie, you can say, uh, the movie sounds really low. Do you think the theater volume is at reference seven? And they'll be like, whoa, but they'll know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'll know to go check and they'll know what that means. By the way, I saw um, Spider-Verse, which I agree uh-huh. with you. It is one of the best films of the year. And um, by the way, spoiler alert, what the heck is it? Make a movie, make it from beginning, put no. it in the middle. Make, no, this make, is this is not like end. this isn't the Marvel movies where it's a constant, you know, tease of the next thing. It's a genuine cliffhanger like the Empire Strikes Back. I was fine. I was for the last 15 minutes, I was like, what is going on? How are they gonna wrap this up? This is getting more and more <laughs> complicated. I was looking at my phone repeatedly, wait a second, is there another half hour to go? How is this? Oh, they're not gonna do it. <laughs> it yes. was a total Empire Strikes Back cliffhanger, as long as the final movie does not, you know, it won't end on the cliffhanger too. So it's an intentional trilogy. I enjoyed it. It was it felt like a real cliffhanger as part of the movie, not attacked on oh, da, da, coming next week, you know. It felt real right. to me. So let me tell you this. We know that they don't save money messing with the volume no. level, but they do try to save money by lowering the light bulb level, if that's the correct pronunciation or correct description of what they're doing. They like to have the light bulbs or the lighting at a lower level because it costs them more money, makes the bulbs last longer, et cetera, et cetera. Is there some universal setting for feature films? And when I can say a movie looks dark, I can be like, hey, is the lighting reference at blank? No, and what I will say is because there's so many combinations, you could have a Cineonic or a Barco projector with a specific, you know, a GDC server with a Dolby Amplify, you know, a Dolby uh, audio processor, because there's so many combinations of equipment, unlike audio, which is mixed for a reference level of seven on the audio processor, projectors don't have a certain power level because you're talking about the, the lighting power, the power being sent to the light engine. Uh, and as a lamp ages, you need to send more power to it to maintain the light level. So you can't go up and say, hey, you need to, you know, turn it up to 13 now. No, you don't know that. What every single feature film today is mastered for, for the most part, there are exceptions, is a, a light level of 14 foot Lamberts hitting the screen. So if you're turning it down, it gets dark very quickly, faster than a 35 millimeter print. Can I hold like a, a test strip up to the screen, walk to the front of the screen and go, hey, this isn't bright enough or something. Is there anything I can do other than just say, wow, this movie looks dark? There are light meters that calibrate it, but generally you would go off of a reference image. Mm-hmm. And so they have these you know, measurement images that they project onto the screen so they know exactly where to aim it. And they can say, well, in the middle, you're at 14 foot Lamberts, but off to the edges, you drop down to seven foot Lamberts. So you've got a hot spot here in the middle. You know, there's all these uh, ways oh well. that they measure this. Well, seven though, volume, theater volume is at reference seven. I'm going to put that in my phone so I can say it the next time I'm at the movie theater. So we know who the box office winners are, but who were the winners at the Tony Awards on Sunday night? Well, did you once watch again, it? We, we did not win. No, I did not. I did not. I wanted to. 
I did want to, but I forgot that it was last night. I'll be honest. Well, I didn't watch it live. I watched it on tape and fast forwarded to all the performances. But I do know this. The ratings, the overnights were 4.3 million people. That's the most since 2019. Woo! It's like 10,000 more than last year, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, and obviously 4.3 million is very small. It's not going to grow a lot in the few next few days because it's the sort of thing people like to watch live. Though in the old days, they would want to watch it because they want to see the performances. So maybe they would record it. But nowadays, you can just find the clips on YouTube. So it's sort of hard to do. But remember now, uh, the the total eyeballs were 4.3 million, but it's the demos that matter. There are TV shows, classically, like St. Elsewhere, that didn't have big eyeballs. A lot of people didn't watch it, but they were the right people. They were either people who are hard to reach, or they were people with a lot of money, or just a certain segment of the audience that they couldn't reach any other way. And so that show became valuable. And the Tonys are very much the same way. It's only 4.3 million people, but all of them are gay. Okay, no, no, they're not all gay. <laughs> but anyway, so it's, it's a passionate audience that loves the theater. And so when you support those advertised there, you are supporting something that they are passionate about and they will remember you as an advertiser. The winners and losers, I told my sister the moment the nominees were mentioned, I said, play some money in London on Kimberly Akimbo. That's winning best musical. You'll get the best odds right now. Uh, she didn't bother, didn't bother. And of course she didn't win, but she would have Kimberly Akimbo as predicted one best musical Leopold Staub, the Tom Stopper play one best play best revival was maybe a bit of a surprise top dog underdog. It could have been that or a doll's house and best revival of a musical was parade. There were a number of popular choices among critics and audiences. Um, the Tony awards really matter because you win Best Musical, that gives you a very good chance of having a longer life on the road. Kimberly Akimbo was a small, heartfelt show. It's the little show that could. It had by far the best reviews of the season. And so, yes, it's another small, low-budget show like Fun House, Fun Home and other shows that we've seen in recent years. It's also the best show of the year, according to almost all the critics. So it can really use that stamp of approval. So that will make a big difference for that show on the road. It's going to be popular for women. It's, it's a small-budget show. You don't need a lot of money to mount it on the road. It's not like some like it hot, a big, flashy musical. And it will have the stamp of approval of the Tony. So the big winner because it won Best Musical and it could most use it and probably profit from it is Kimberly Akimbo. I have not seen it yet, but I would like to. Victoria Clark stars as a woman who's actually a 16-year-old girl, but she has a disease that makes her look like a 70-year-old woman. So, it, you know, she's only going to live to like 20. Uh, so it's bittersweet, sweet, charming, uh, lovely, and yeah, beautifully acted. So that it's like it's like the movie Jack. Remember that movie? It was yeah, a yeah. Francis Ford Coppola movie that uh, actually was written by a classmate of mine. I might yeah. add. Well, uh, I, I watched it. So a couple things worked. The host was Ariana DeBose, who was in So You Think You Can Dance at one point. She's a Tony person. Uh, she was very assured and did a great job. They showed clips in introducing the actors for musicals and plays, and it worked very well. They didn't try to use a big clip to set up the show, like this is what this play is about. But they just showed short clips that were filmed, and they felt you know, very vibrant and good. They didn't feel like some camera standing in the back of the theater taping something. It felt like a good moment of the show. It worked well. Um, and backstage, this worked really well. It was just a love fest. You know, they showed actors who would perform a musical number. They would come off the stage. And when they were cutting to commercial, they would show them going backstage. And there would be the bunch of people getting ready to perform the next musical number all in costume. And they'd be cheering them as they came off stage and all hug and kiss. It was very, very Tony's. You know, the fans would eat it up. That sort of love fest of, oh, we all love each other. We're one big community. And meanwhile, they all want to kill each other and win the award. But, you know, so that worked really well. And the writers showed up. The WGA said, hey, you know, you can, well, let the show go on, but no writing and the writers should not go. They should just take their acceptance speech in advance. The writers all sort of went like, eh, no. And they went. But what they did was instead of pre-taping a speech when they didn't know if they would win, they all, of course, shouted out for the writers and talked about the writer's strike and how much they support them. I thought that was the right thing to do. They spoke out forcefully for them with that platform and it worked well. Best of all were the performances because there was no stupid banter. They had more time for performances and only two shows did medleys, which you and I both hate, right? I'm not a big fan. I usually like do give me a whole number. Yeah, exactly. give me a strong number. And and that can sell the whole show. Exactly. Give me medleys where I don't know what the heck is going on here or there. I don't, give me just give me one number. 
That'll Camelot be- did a medley of four songs, and they might think, well, it's a classic show, so you know it. Nonetheless, it was terrible because it didn't sell any of the numbers and sell the show at all. So that was a mistake. New York, New York was the only other show that sort of did a medley, but it was kind of just an intro. And then they went right into the title song, New York, New York, that big number. And that worked very well. I thought that was one of the uh, best moments for a show that could use it. The show has been a little struggling and that number, I thought tourists might go, yeah, I want to see that show. And then everybody else did one big number. And Juliet did a cover of Roar. Some Like It Hot did the title number. Into the Woods, Parade, Sweeney Todd. It was definitely pretty good. The worst performance of the night was A Beautiful Noise, the Neil Diamond musical that is now going to tour. They did Sweet Caroline, and it was kind of awful. And it's like the audience was there. They were singing, dot, dot, dot. They were all rooting for them. But it just looked cheesy and bad. Um, and frankly, that show is off Broadway and it is touring now, so it can still use the plug. Uh, funny girl gone. Leah Michelle, she performed Don't Rain on My Parade like 13 years ago when she was on Glee. Here she is again doing it when it's on Broadway. Uh, that was like the last show of the, the number of the show, and it was killed. It was killed. I mean, they didn't give it a standing O because it seems like it's a big, big theater they were at, and people didn't give a standing ovation to anything as far as I could tell, not a pure standing ovation, but she killed it. She sounded great, and it was a really good performance of that song, and uh, it, it worked well. So it was like, oh, well, sorry, that show's not on stage because people would rush to see it. But, you know, all the shows worked. Kimberly Akimbo, Shucked, Sweeney Todd, you name it. They all got their chance to perform, and they all put them across well. So I thought it was a a surprisingly successful show, which doesn't mean you don't want writers. It just means make the focus on the performances. That's what you can do special. That's what no other show can do. Put on a big musical number like this. Obviously, the Grammys do too. But musical numbers like this are so unique. Most people will see shows on Broadway or when they tour all over the world. So sell your show, make it a big number, do your best job. A lot of, uh, you know, history moments were made Two non-binary actors, won Tony awards. That's awesome. And the Tonys just embraced what they were. People gave passionate, heartfelt speeches. They were political because by God, they're the Tonys. You don't think they're liberal? Of course they're liberal. (laughs) So speaking of award shows, the Golden Globes have just been sold. The TV rights have gone to Dick Clark Productions and another group. And that's happening because the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is winding down its nonprofit status to transform itself into a commercial enterprise. And part of that was selling off the rights to the Golden Globes. So we haven't heard the last of them either. Nor have we heard the last of Cuba Gooding Jr. I think it's only fair to follow up. We talked about some uh, multiple allegations against Cuba Gooding Jr. He was headed to trial, but he settled a civil lawsuit with a woman who said he raped her. He says, of course, he did not, that it was consensual, but he reportedly paid her a considerable, that's a quote from one of the trades, a considerable sum of money. The judge had strengthened the woman's case shortly before jury selection began when he ruled three other women who described unwanted advances and harassment from Gooding Jr. could testify. We've learned nothing about it since then, but it has happened and the case has been settled. Not exactly a clean slate for Cuba Gooding Jr., but he's not going to trial and he won't be found guilty or he won't be found uh, liable in a civil court. He has settled that out of court. So that's a depressing thing to talk about, but that's part of the business, isn't it? It's hard to talk about any movie or TV show without talking about this case and that case and the other thing. But, you know, it's if you're going to say he was uh, accused, it's important to point when the case has moved forward. Well, and so, he, uh, cr- criminally was not accused? No, no, this was, a, this was a civil right. case. But this I mean, was a civil I guess- case. There, there were other cases where he, he did go to court and, and accepted, you know, a plea bargain to do community service or whatever. But I'm, I'm speaking off oh, the top okay. of my head, but he has had other issues and has admitted to kissing a woman, and do, you know, who, a woman in a bar who didn't ask to be kissed, forcibly kissing someone and doing other things. So he has multiple issues uh, that were him, but he is, to my knowledge, not facing any civil or criminal charges right now. So that's important to say. Do would you go see any of those Broadway shows? Have you, know, you seen uh, any of them? I w- when I was in New York uh, recently in October, I could have seen Kimberly Akimbo. It was oh, like I, that's my top you know, and I was list. like, "What is this play? I don't know. I don't know what this musical is." Uh, and but most Why of them you ask were me? not. Yeah, well, <laughs> most of them weren't uh, open yet. Uh, of course, they all are. You told me not to see Camelot. You said it's not very good. That's right. Uh, even though it has a thirty-piece orchestra, which is the only reason I would want to see it. Uh, and and uh, I guess Philippa Sue is in it. Uh, that would be kind of nice. I'd love to see Sweeney Todd. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, great show. Uh, and also, you know, Josh Groban. Well, well, anyway. well buy tickets for um, uh, uh, Here Lies Love, but we'll get to that soon in Big Deal or Big Whoop. Oh, okay. Then you know what? Since I want to know what shows I should see, it must be time for us to head on over to Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly se- segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Could you tell I wasn't ready for you to do that yet? Yep, tell? yep, yep. The scrolling, scrolling, I, scrolling. I'm like, what is all this stuff about S SAG and W? We've got a lot of notes oh, for SAG. There's a big strike going on, Sperling. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. You know who doesn't really have to worry about that right now? Ooh. Chris Licht. He doesn't have to worry about it anymore because he was the embattled head of CNN, but he has been fired. Uh, uh, big deal. <laughs> yeah. Was it? Now, my question is was it that 15,000 word Atlantic profile? Was it the dismay of rank and file members, you know, all those journalists and and staff? Was it that Donald Trump town hall? Nope. It was the money. Frankly, I think it was all of those things. But the ratings fell and the money was drying up when CNN is supposed to be a gusher of money for Warner Brothers Discovery. Lick made one mistake after another. He dumped Don Lemon into the AM. He's pissing off all the employees, frankly. Not that it matters, but it certainly doesn't help. He's desperately trying to find something that works in prime time and watching one day part after another suffer in the ratings. And bad ratings mean, you know, lower revenue and lower revenue is, well, bad. The only balance the bosses of CNN really care about is in their bank account. And that balance was not growing the way it should be. So Licht is out. David Zaslov, who's the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, he said, and this is a quote, it didn't work out. (laughs) <laughs> they made the, <laughs> they made the announcement, and within hours, the company's stock was up more than three percent. So, is this Ouch. a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal, of course. Uh, he did launch Morning Joe on MSNBC. He revamped the CBS Morning Talker, the equivalent to Good Morning America and the Today Show. He successfully took on Colbert and turned him around. Uh, all of them have been very successful and good money makers. So, he does have that talent skill, but. Running CNN is much, much different than working on a single particular show. And there is still a possibility that his innovations in the daytime might bear fruit if they're maintained. It feels like if you watch CNN during the afternoon, which I don't do much, but I sort of sampled it to see what he was doing, that instead of these individual shows that are just sort of in their little thing and then there's another show, it feels more like not that they're trying to hype everything into breaking news, which I hate. You know, there's a weather storm and they make it sound like the end of the world. But if there is a big story, they're able to cover it in multiple ways and make it feel like substantial coverage over a period of hours rather than just, oh, there's a school bus off a cliff, you know. So it it has felt more substantial and more dynamic and more interesting. So that is something he did. And maybe that will take fruit down the road. But, you know, in general... Uh, not a great job. Well, uh, you know, I agree with you. That whole thing, that Wolf Blitzer breaking news. This just into the newsroom. The sun has risen <laughs> over the east coast of the United States. Uh, details will be following. So stay with us as we bring you this breaking news. Clouds are now getting in the way of well, the sun. It's very hard not to hype up whatever the little moment. But, you know, we've had these wildfires and we'll get to them in a minute. But it just feels like you can keep covering that story from 17 different angles over the next, you know, over a week where all day long you've got an experts about in- insurance on homes and how that's affecting California and Florida from the climate crisis where you've got uh, crops, where you've got uh, people not being able to get insurance in Canada or in upstate New York or Pennsylvania. And it's just, there, there's stuff about uh, the air quality. Now people are going to have to start wearing masks again and looking at air quality apps, just like they've been doing in, in India and China for years now. And so how the rest of the world has been dealing with this for a long time, that brings in your international people. So instead of just, oh, what's the weather like where you're standing on the street corner? There are substantial, interesting things to talk about when there is something dominating the news like the wildfires. And so it feels like maybe they're starting to do that rather than just, ah, you know, waving their hands in the air. Well, Licht, uh, I mean, he's a good executive producer, as you pointed out. And there is a big difference between running a show and one show and running an entire 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Monstrous network. company with a ton of ton of moving parts. Yeah. And he we came could do, in. We and- could do it, but he didn't. Yeah, well, he he had a lot big shoes to fill. Jeff Zucker was out uh, moments before he came in, uh, and 
you know, they brought in David Levy just earlier this week. And I think that was people say, well, will Licht survive this? And I immediately thought, well, no, he won't. Because all of those people that have a grievance against him inside the company, inside CNN, will turn to this new person, David Levy, who is one of David Zasloff's best friends or, or you know, right-hand people, and air their grievances to David Levy, who will then bring it to David Zasloff, who will realize, oh, well, apparently nobody at CNN has any faith in their leader anymore. I'm going to have to replace him. It took three days. <laughs> three days. Breaking news. It's time to move on to the next big deal, big whoop. Oh, are you sure? Because I could talk about this other thing. Okay, anyway. You Michael, still haven't sent you... me the Atlantic story. I don't subscribe, so I haven't been able to read it. Oh, re- oh gosh. <laughs> I mean, you read this Atlantic story and you're just like, how much rope did they give you to hang yourself? Because it seems like an awful lot. <laughs> but uh, in any case, uh, I know you love this next story, Michael. Every year, the Educational Te- Theater Association, they do a survey and list the top 10 performed full-length plays and musicals in high schools across the United States during the school year that just ended. It also asked about concerns over censorship, and no surprise, everyone is freaked out and very concerned about what shows they put on and pushback from parents and pushback from the administration. So if you're looking for a safe, maybe that's why, you know, most performed musical and play last school year was The Addams Family? Because if you're looking for something safe, oh, by the way, the play, the comedy clue. So I don't know how you how you offend anybody with those two things. Keep I mean, reading. how angry? How, <laughs> I don't know how how angry can you get about a, a show based on a board game, really? And I, I will say this: Professor Plum was killed with a candlestick in the library, and that's both violent, number one, and it undermines authority. And the Adams family does have cousin it, who I believe recently came out as non-binary. So you know, maybe we should just close the drama department entirely. That's what we should do. Big deal, the big whoop. Uh, and some people have. Um, it's a big whoop, of course, but it's interesting. You've got the Adams Family, which is a fairly safe show. I don't know why kids in high school keep doing it. It's not that good a show. I mean, do the sound of music, for God's sake. But Mamma Mia, Into the Woods, Little Shop of Horrors, Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, SpongeBob, the teen edition of Chicago. That seems a little tricky. Legally Blonde and the high school version of Mean Girls. So, uh, you know, this is the first time Chicago and Mean Girls have popped into the top 10. And in the plays, you had Clue, a spoof of Harry Potter called Puffs, a little Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream. I thought they didn't include Shakespeare. Uh, The play that goes wrong, Radium Girls, which is a historical play about uh, uh, the women, I think, working at Los Alamos. Almost Maine, a classic collection of short plays and one actors and little sketches. Peter and the Star Catcher, which is great. Um, She Kills Monsters, the Young Adventures edition. Alice in Wonderland, a classic. And 12 Angry Jurors. It's not 12 Angry Men anymore because you want girls to have parts too. Um, Notably absent from the list of plays was Our Town, which has been on the list virtually every year since the survey began in 1938. So it was just outside the top 10 at number 11. Uh, So it's good that they're doing new and different plays. I just wish they were good ones and not, you know, just the most recent stuff, which is what I feel about some of them. And all these plays are safe and all these plays are dangerous based on how you perform them and who you cast. So none of them are really actually, you know, easy and things you don't have to worry about some parent objecting about something because believe me, somebody can object to anything that there is. But we were talking about shows to see. If you go back to New York, I would definitely go see Here Lies Love. Um, They did come to an agreement with the Broadway unions. Unfortunately, they will have to be hiring 11 musicians. I'm glad the guys got the work, the men and the women, but that is the people, I should say, in the musicians union, but it was not necessary for the show artistically or uh, legally, I would say. And it's a shame that they had to do that. That will massively increase the cost of the show. And artistically that was not necessary but everyone is making nice and we'll have to see what happens to the show um i think it was terrific when i saw it at the public and if you've never seen it it's well worth checking out well radium girls by the way was actually uh that was the name given to women who were working in a specific factory watches they were oh like, making- right they got poisoned that's right that's a historical yes. play about the 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 people realizing that they're being poisoned by the work they're doing and that's right that's a, and who's the playwright of that? You got that called up? Oh, no, I don't have no, that. I never mind, remember, never mind, never mind. Yeah, I remembered the story. That's I was just going based on the story. Uh, I remember right. there was a book based on it. Uh, so it's Susical, not in there, I noticed. Susical, not, not in the top 10. Okay, well, 
I guess uh, I'll have to learn the parts to uh, Little Shop of Horrors or Beauty and the Beast. In any case, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, radiation poisoning, blame Canada. I mean, that's the tongue in cheek. Blame Canada. Yeah, it's uh, from the South Park movie, uh, and it has gone viral, that song, once again. It's a joke, of course, even though this time the problem is real. Wildfires in Canada have reached record levels for this time of year, echoing recent years when it seemed like half of Australia was on fire or similar disasters plagued California and other states. This time, the smoke created havoc in the eastern United States, where people are not used to checking the air quality levels. New York City at one point had the worst air quality in the world, ash drifted out of the sky in Virginia. Multiple states alerted people to avoid going outside at times, especially children, the elderly, and those with breathing issues. Why are we discussing the weather? I mean, well, I mean, baseball games and Broadway shows were canceled. One in the middle of a performance, in fact. Yeah. Outdoor concerts were out of the question. The sky in New York City was an apocalyptic orange, although I still say that was Warner Brothers reshooting parts of Dune. That's just me. <laughs> uh, the message uh, from climate experts, get used to it. This is the new normal. Just like radiation girls, you know, they actually stopped that. We can't stop this. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's going to be a permanent issue that you'll have to plan on and think about and I guess insure for and try to deal with if you're doing anything in the northeastern United States and worried about uh, whether the show can go on. So don't blame Canada. Blame ExxonMobil. Anyway, uh, you know, fossil fuel burning, the pollution in the atmosphere, that creates drier weather, longer fire seasons, more land is parched of rain and thus a tinderbox ready to catch fire from any lightning strike. And of course, there are now stronger air currents of warmer air that send the smoke farther and farther away from where they began. My mom and I were driving up to from Birmingham, Alabama to Greentown, Pennsylvania, ash was falling on our car in Virginia. I was like, what is that? I thought they were bugs. And I'm looking, I'm like, that's not bugs. That's just like ash. <laughs> like that's never happened in my life. So that's crazy. The air was really bad where we were. We had an outdoor wedding, uh, but happily it cleared up like the day or two right before. So the day of the wedding, we had a little rain for a few minutes during the 15 minute outdoor ceremony, but it wasn't spoiled. It was a nice sunny sky, but it could have been an orange sky with people wearing N95 masks and trying to breathe. I mean, so that's, you know, it's going to affect everybody for a long time to come. But when you think about it, doing concerts, doing a sporting event and just normal part of the season, you're going to find games canceled or delayed extraordinarily because of air pollution from the pollution that we've poured into the atmosphere from wildfires and things like that. So it's going to be a big problem for a long time to come. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting. First of all, rain is the best thing you can have to get that stuff yeah. out of the air. Number one, uh, number two, like, you know, all of these people throughout, at least this country, I can only speak for this country saying, oh, the global warming doesn't exist. And I'm like, come to California. I'll show you ash falling from the sky that will cover your entire yard and make it look like black snow. Yeah, last year, half of Australia was on fire or another year before that, like California is like, you know, it's already here, baby. <laughs> like, yeah, what do you mean it does? This is just now, the first time that it's happened where it's affected the East Coast and people are like, oh, my God. I'm like, hey, you know what we call that? 2018. We call yeah, that 2018. Yeah, and, and people in India and China and other parts of the world are like, yeah, glad you noticed. We've been dealing call with it this Sunday. for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so it's a now, big this problem. next story. I don't even know where to begin this, this next story. This this one just makes me shake my head uh, because, let's face it, no one saw that coming. The PGA has been bought out by the Saudi government. Yes, a major sport in the U.S. has one financial backer, the Saudis. Unlike football and baseball, where a bunch of team owners can duke it out over the direction of the game, golf is like tennis. It has individual players and just one league. We're, we're still learning the details of this deal, but it's a shocker since the PGA and some major players all turned away from piles of money offered by the Saudis over the past year. And now, without a single major player consulted, the PGA is quote unquote merging. And I use that with those quotes for a reason because they're merging with the barely existing Live Tour and welcoming back the players it had banned for life. For now, the PGA says it's maintaining a controlling number of seats on the board that is running this whole new entity, uh, as well as a controlling interest in the new commercial venture, at least for now. But apparently the Saudi investment fund, which is, it's the, that's what's the government controlled. It's the government. Yeah. Yes. Well, 
Yeah, as opposed to anything else. Yeah. Uh, they will be the sole investors in the new entity and have the right of first refusal on any future investments and be able to veto any other funding. So there won't be a uh, big they, deal. They are the won't. money. They are the money bag. So they are yeah. in charge. Yes. So uh, what do you think? Is it a big deal or a big whoop? Is it going to ruin golf? Will people turn away from golf? Will it become a scandal? And people, I tell you, my brother, David voted for Trump watching Top Gun Maverick. Is that's terrible. This is terrible. This is, you know, just, I've never seen a, a sports league, you know, portray, you know, things like this. This is just awful. That's what he and his friends were saying the day it happened. Well, do I, do I don't think it's, I don't think it's it's uh yes there are the moral and ethical issues of doing a deal with that particular government. Obviously. Well, that's all we're that's all we're talking about, isn't it? What else is Yes. There? So there's that. But take take the moral and ethical issues. That's problem number 1. Let's throw in problem number 2. You have a you're working essentially for the PGA. This is a group that told you if you go and sign a deal with those people, you will become very wealthy and never be invited back to we will never invite you back. And you will be at an upstart company that ha- or upstart league, which hasn't been around for more than 10 months, and they may fail. And if and when they fail, you will not be invited back here. And all of those players who left became exceed- obscenely wealthy. And all of those players who stayed were told you're doing the right thing morally and, morally and ethically until such time as the leaders of that organization that were saying you're doing the right thing mor- morally and ethically and financially decided that they themselves were going to go enrich themselves. I mean, that's what pisses me off about it too. Well, that's what it would piss you off if you're Rory McIlroy or Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods may have turned down a billion dollars. Certainly, yeah. Rory McIlroy and others turned down a, a hundreds of millions of dollars of, of money and offers to, to you know, fatten their purses, and they didn't. And now they're, oh, by the way, we just merged with them. And it's not like the PGA was hurting financially. You no. Know, there, were, there were no particular problems with the company financially, with the, with the business. Um, but will it make a difference? Absolutely not. No, Baseball, but you know what? I do wonder. Watched mostly by older white men. They will grumble for a week, and then they will keep watching. What if care. all of those players just decided, you know what? We're it just going to go form our own league. We're just it won't happen. It won't happen because they wouldn't be able to play the majors. Though the majors are not really owned by the PGA. Now, the LPGA, the Women's League, is separate. It's not part of the PGA. It's its own separate league. And, of course, are they going to be rushing into the arms of the Saudis where women are treated like chattel and are second-class citizens? Mm, no, they not. are not. Are there any Jews, women, gays, anybody else who, you know, likes democracy and freedom? Are, are they welcome? No, they're not. But golf is watched primarily by older white men. They will grumble for a week and then they will keep watching. The Saudis are using their cash, as people call it, to sports wash. They're doing it all over the world. They're doing it in soccer. They bought Newcastle United a few years ago. That's one of the UK's biggest clubs. They, they offered piles of cash to top players to join its own pro league, and they're coming. Cristiano Ronaldo is making $100 million a year or so. Kareem Benzema just signed a three-year deal worth $643 million. Lionel Messi, he went to Miami. He went to the U.S., but he did take $30 million a year to boost tourism for Saudi Arabia. And he made more than a billion dollars in career earnings. So didn't really need the money. Formula One, they're big players. They're big players in boxing, cricket, horse racing, snooker, and more. Now, how is this different from like fears of Japan taking over America when they were doing really well you know, uh, economically and buying Rockefeller Center? Well, that was just sort of fear of Japan. That was xenophobia. That was like, the only objection was that they were Japanese. In this case, it's really an objection to the government and how it treats its people. And other people could object to the U.S. government and how they treat their people. That would be fine. Look, Don't look, do the American government did invade Iraq, yeah, as yeah. we now know, unnecessarily. So, yes, so, I get this it. Is, this is not about foreigners. This is about uh, the form of a government. It's like apartheid-era South Africa. Some people say, I don't want to do business with apartheid South Africa. Other people pretend, well, we're going to change them from within, even though all the people of South Africa who were suffering said, please don't do that. They said, no, we know best. And they did business and made money anyway. That's all that's happening here. But it won't make any difference to golf. And guess what? I watched the Canadian Open the last few holes. It was very exciting. The first Canadian in almost 70 years was poised to win uh, another player, Fleetwood from Europe, came back, tied it up. They went into sudden death. They played four holes. The 18th hole, they tied. The 18th hole, they tied. The ninth hole, they tied. The 18th hole, the uh, Tommy Fleetwood was there, and then there was our guy. You mean they repeat the same hole? They yeah, repeat like they, 18, they, they, 18, 18, again. 9, 18. In this case, it's different. It depends on the, on the game, where okay. they're at and all that. But sometimes it's like that's where everybody is. 
you know, that's where all the cameras and the finale is held. So they want to hold it there. I think that's the reason for some of it. And so there they were, fourth sudden death playoff hole. They're back at the 18th hole. And the uh, Nick Taylor uh, sunk a 72-foot putt to win and, you know, not have to keep going. He sunk a 72 foot putt to just win it, uh, you know, outright. And it was the longest putt of his professional career. It was super exciting. It was like, woohoo! you know, we watched that or Canadian and that was very exciting. First time in almost 70 years and it's golf. You know, you know what? We, uh, we didn't turn uh, it I have off. to say, I can, I don't get, I can never make it past the windmill. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's my joke. I said, well, now if they, I said, if they tie at the 18th again, then they go to the mini golf course and they play the windmill hole. That's the hole that they go to. (laughs) There you go. But really, the Saudis and the PGA get into business. It's like Batman and the Joker teaming up to open a B&B. But, you know, it's going to happen and life is going to go on, unfortunately. But it's time for Inside Baseball. That was pretty insidery. But this is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. We had just sort of a quick update. I feel pretty good about myself. Who did we have on last week, Sperling? Who did we have Jonathan on? Handel. We had He's Jonathan Handel on. He's an expert. He and- literally wrote the book on labor in Hollywood during especially the modern day, because, of course, he wrote Hollywood on strike. That's right. And he said he thought the vote in SAG-AFTRA to support the strike would be the high 80s to low 90s. I thought both of the major groups were pushing for this very strongly. I hadn't heard anybody speak out against striking with any sort of fervor. And I flippantly said 99%. Well, it was 98%. It was 97.9% in favor of a strike. That's what the membership voted for. That is massive support. Uh, they did do some good explanation of what they're looking for in AI, what their demands are. I thought it was even clearer than the Writers Guild and certainly the Directors Guild. I thought this was interesting. Uh, in Variety, Duncan Crabtree Ireland uh, wrote a piece talking about uh, artificial intelligence. He says sag is looking to push for state laws to protect an actor's voice and likeness to say they can't be used in ads. He's pushing for voice and likeness laws at the federal level, especially in expressive works. He's pushing for federal copyright protection for humans. That would mean you can't train AI with copyrighted work, which of course they've already been doing. That would be infringement. And they would also say that any work generated by AI can never be copyrighted. And they want, most importantly for them, they want... If you want to use creative works or an actor's voice and likeness, SAG-AFTRA is the gatekeeper, not individual actors. You got to go through SAG-AFTRA to make sure all the members are on the same page and they're all getting the same rights and responsibilities. So they're basically saying you can't steal our work and then train your AI. You have to come to us. You cannot, you know, use a voice alike of Tom Waits or James Earl Jones and use that for your TV ads. You certainly can't use their likeness, certainly can't use their visual looks. It's been done before, and they're looking to push specific at the state and federal level to do that. So I thought that was a pretty interesting and clear thing. But at the DGA, of course, I know that some of the details have come out and people don't seem that excited about it, are they? No, they're basically like, yeah, this whole AI thing is they'll, they'll, like, not, they'll basically go, yeah, we'll take that into consideration. it's not even it's like they now with the the actors it it makes perfect sense you could literally mimic james earl jones's voice and so i think people have i remember i remember a tv commercial where they had a tom waits look alike sound alike sing a song why do you want tom waits in your ad i don't know i love him but you know that's a very distinctive voice but yeah they've been doing it already yeah and if you look at there's a a video going around a viral video of of uh ron desantis the florida governor oh right yeah he is uh, like as Michael Scott from The Office, and it's his face and and Ron DeSantis's voice on the character. It's pretty good. It, it's pretty remarkable how how accurate it is. So I think, and we having- and we've had official ads released by the Republican National Committee that use AI. We've had individual ads, I think, by um some some individual politicians that involve fake video and stuff. So yeah, it's already happening. I'm surprised that, you know, not to get political, I'm surprised Donald Trump hasn't said, I never said any of that stuff on the recording that I was indicted for. It's all, it's a deep fake. <laughs> I was just well, waiting for him to say that. Well, he might. So the sag after members are very ready to strike. The DGA has struck a deal and they're looking for it to come to members. They released more of the details. Most of the reviews and uh, reactions have been, eh. 
the best thing I heard people say was, well, we already had a great deal. So there wasn't much to work on this time around. I doubt that they will reject it. I don't think it'll be hugely overwhelmingly in support, but I don't think it's any danger of not being approved. They're probably all thinking, well, maybe the writers and, act- and actors will get something better and we can benefit from that. <laughs> right. Well, what they're the biggest thing that they're uh, upset about, the two things, well, there's three things. One, who's that? Uh, uh, sorry, you're right. The directors in this case. Oh, the okay. AI, they think they, that clause they think is incredibly weak and means nothing. They're like, this doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it's far more important, though, to the writers and to the to the uh, actors, obviously. So they'll probably push for something. And the, the Actors seem to really know what they want. And by basically putting in that copyright, that's a poison pill. You basically use AI to create something and it's not, co- you can't put a copyright on it. Then why would you make it in the first place? So, right. and so that was, uh, that was a perfect uh, clause to, or uh, that's a great ask. Uh, yeah. And to go through SAG to use AI, also smart. The directors, so they they weren't happy with the AI. They weren't happy with not keeping up with inflation for their raises each year. And, and they certainly aren't happy about not no transparency on paying people for success. They still have no idea what's successful right. or what's not successful. And they're like, we want to go back to if you create a hit, you make more money. Not this one size fits all. Well, we'll let you know later. You know, it's like, it's like yeah, they want to know if we've had a hit, then we should make more money. And everybody should benefit. They want to go back to that. That's the way it's been for many years, even though some revenue was hidden from them overseas, DVD, you name it. But in general, they want to know if we're having a hit, we want to make more money. If we have a flop, then we suffer. Well, and what they're really uh, saying, at least the writers, directors, the ones that are on in, have a foot in both camp are saying, look, if there was ever a time for us to get what we want with the actors on the verge of going on strike the writers already on strike why ask for something that's so kind of me bland yeah yeah Yeah, like so i still don't think there's i don't think there's enough pushback for it to fall apart i think it will still get approved but if we see momentum growing in the next few days to say no don't do this but there's no united faction i think pushing to say reject this deal the writers guild of course they are on strike on location filming in los angeles Uh, Jonathan Handel said it was down to like a third of what it normally was. I believe it's basically ground to a halt. Nothing is happening. And one of the big things we're seeing people still talk about from actors, writers, and directors are, you know, streamers just dumping stuff from their platforms. We've seen a couple articles about creators venting their anger and distress over disappearing content on streamers. Disney just announced a $1.5 billion write down after removing dozens of properties. And frankly, uh, I think there's just gonna have to be some boilerplate down the road. You know, if it's not available on your streamer or anywhere for eight consecutive quarters, I get it back. Uh, If you can't just dump it on a fast channel without promotional support, or if it's not above a certain level of, you know, it's not being rented or people aren't looking at it, then you know they're not being sent there. Then you can say, all right, then we get the rights back. You know, maybe you require a release on physical media if you're removing it from a streamer. There are people who say, my show has disappeared. I don't even have a DVD of it. It literally doesn't exist for me anymore. So it's, I think it's really interesting. And, you know, back to syndication, being a piece of the pie. These shows are leaving streamers and then they're saying, huh, maybe we can sell it on streaming. But uh, I don't know. It's a big mess. The writers are striking. The actors are about to strike. Even the workers at Disneyland Paris are striking. They are striking at Disneyland Paris. They are asking for 200 euros a month in a raise plus travel compensation. As far as I can figure out, that means probably about a dollar twenty-five euro. Uh, not a dollar twenty-five. One point two five euros an hour raise. So an extra. an hour in their raise of what they're being paid right now. That's what it will work out. 40 hours a week. When you get to 200 euros a month, that's about 1.25 euros. So not exactly a huge demand, but that's what they're looking for. Yeah, well, I I don't know whether... I I think that the producers will try and strike a deal with SAG because if they can prevent DGA from going on strike and they prevent SAG from going on strike, then they can really bend the, you know, they, then the writers are on their own. Well, only if they see like that the other guilds are angry at the writers, but the other guilds don't seem to be angry at the writers. There seems to be pretty good solidarity, even among directors, that the writers and actors have a lot of good stuff to be striking over. It's not a spurious strike. It's not a flippant strike. It's not one over something they don't care. They're like, no, they have a good reason to be on strike. 
So I don't think there's any wavering in the United front at this point. And they can make a deal with Sag. They got to give him a lot of stuff. I don't think they're going to bend. I don't think they're going to take a really mild deal like the way some would say the TGA did. But I don't think the strike is dead. But I know some people oh. have died. Televangelist Pat Robertson is dead at 93. Of course, he's most important politically. Um, but he was also a major innovator in media, where he turned a small station in Virginia, a TV station, into the seed that sprouted into the Christian Broadcasting Network, the cable channel and multimedia powerhouse around the world. His signature show, The 700 Club, is still on the air. It airs on Freeform because he formed another channel called The Family Channel. Then it became ABC Family. Then it became Freeform, and now it's owned by Disney. And so that's why, as well as the CBN and syndication, you can find The 700 Club on Freeform. That's weird. But in He's the original alone, televangelist. He's one of the not, original He's not the original, but he's an early one, certainly. Uh, but CBN brought in $321 million in what it calls ministry support last year. So he's still a big deal. Pianist George Winston died at 73. He helped popularize New Age music and the Wyndham Hill label. He called his style folk piano and hated New Age. But, you know, when you're doing solo piano and you're sold in a nature granola store, that's what they're going to call you. And, and um, you his, appear in every doctor's office uh, you're, and, and on elevators. You're New Age music. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I love his album, December, which is his bestseller. I consider it a holiday album. That's why it's such a perennial favorite. It sold 3 million copies worldwide, which is a lot for solo piano music. Um, he recorded right up to the end of his life, despite fighting off cancers. His final release before dying, fittingly, it was called Night. Uh, and media mogul and Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, dead at 86, just like Pat Robertson, mostly, I would say, a negative influence on the world. The New York Times said he left a mark, or if you prefer, a bruise on every element of Italian society. Uh, scandal plagued from beginning to end. Uh, Bossa Nova singer Astrid Gilberto died at 83. She was the epitome of Bossa Nova cool. Her husband, Jorge Gilberto, and Stan Getz were recording an album. They said, hey, sing these two songs. She did. They were the first two songs she ever recorded, and one of them was The Girl from Ipanema, which won a Grammy for Record of the Year, sold 5 million copies, launched her career, and helped make Bossa Nova a hip trend, even though it is now, of course, an enduring genre. It was the hip, hip music of the 1950s. Getz Gilberto is one of the best albums of all time. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, 1964, Getz Gilberto, a tremendous album. The Iron Sheik in wrestling died. He was an Iranian. He played it off in the late 70s, being a villain, uh, a you know, fighting Hulk Hogan, who was then Hollywood Hogan, fighting, uh, winning the WWE championship when Iran had had the American hostages. He did the camel clutch, the feared camel clutch to defeat his enemies. He was there when wrestling became the pop cultural phenomenon that it still is today in many ways. And uh, actor and singer Ed Ames, he died at 95. I'll have to get to him next week he's always there waiting for me to talk about what why is that true or yeah i've left it for three weeks because i want to talk about him it's going to take too long oh I kept okay thinking, i kept thinking i would not include ed ames he's a jewish actor best known for playing uh the indian sidekick to daniel boone on the tv series and I thought, i'm not going to talk about ed ames but he had a really cool career he and his brothers played a vocal quartet called the ames brothers they had dozens of hits then he went solo. They were on Ed Sullivan's show. Uh, he went starting the Fantastics off Broadway. Then he jumped to Broadway in the musical Carnival. He was the chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on Broadway opposite Kirk Douglas and Gene Wilder. It was a hit, a big hit, but Kirk Douglas could not get the film adaptation off the ground. We had to wait for his son to do that. But being in that show playing the chief, he was not Indian, of course, but that led to him being cast as Mingo on Daniel Boone. And let's not forget his most famous performance. It was as a guest on The Tonight Show. He'd been on the show multiple times because Daniel Boone was a pop cultural phenomenon. On the show, they'd had him throwing a bola and a lance and shooting an arrow. And this time they said, hey, we want you to throw a hatchet. He's like, all right, I've never thrown a hatchet before, but he tried once, you know, it's a TV show, people. He tried once or twice in, in, in rehearsal and then on air, they had a big wooden thing and a chalk outline of a man. And Ed Ames stood there as the, you know, Mingo and he 
threw a hatchet and hit it right at the crotch, <laughs> right at the crotch of this chalk mark. And the audience burst into laughter. And Johnny Carson, after the laughter died down, said, I didn't even know you were Jewish. <laughs> 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 Which sent them off into a paroxysm. If you ever see a clip show about Carson, they always show that clip. It's, a, it's pretty great. Look it up online. Well, because, the, I mean, that's, that is classic Carson. It's- that's a classic Carson, classic Booper. And it turns out he is Jewish, which Carson, I don't believe, even knew when he made the joke. <laughs> no, but, but it's it, just, you know. But we yeah. will include that in our show notes along with other stuff because we won't be there. Now. Look, I type in Ed Ames on YouTube. You get Ed Ames, Johnny Carson, Tomahawk. <laughs> That's the absolute first thing that they show. Well, you know what? The first thing we show is how you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. We don't really show it, though. We just tell you about it because, let's face it, we're not on video. We're on audio. But you know what? You can find all of those ways to subscribe to us, all of those ways to contact us. Uh, we are at dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle or facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. All of that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's show as well as that Tomahawk Ed Ames clip. You know what? They will be in our show notes on showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's Gets Gilberto. You should listen to that album. It's an absolute classic. Oh, yes, that really is. But you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next time, play nice. Bye. Uh-huh.